And you gentlemen, did you save room for dessert? Hmm. Yeah, what's that? That's our signature dessert, Cherry's Jubilee. Mm. Sounds great. <laughs> Bring the young vandal here, Cherry's Jubilee. I'm afraid I can't. The dish contains brandy. Same deal with the bananas, Foster. Yeah, but doesn't the alcohol just burn off? Mm. It's still against the rules, ma'am. Fine. I'll order the Cherry's Jubilee. We can share it. I can't allow that either. Can we say it's his birthday? It's my birthday. Oh, happy birthday, young man. Well, let's get you a slice of cake or some other age-appropriate dessert. Christ on a crutch. What kind of a fascist hash foundry are you running here? Welcome to Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host, Mike, and we are wrapping up 2023 and our latest trilogy with a film that, boy, it, you know, it's unfair to have the kind of expectations that I had, I think, after Sideways and The Descendants. I never watched uh, Downsizing because uh, Matt Damon's terrible. Matt Damon? <laughs> so you're not going to uh, have uh, Alexander Payne take any responsibility for a film that got trashed by everyone <laughs> when it came out? <laughs> None. If you don't believe me, watch Oppenheimer. Terrible. Matt Damon's the worst. <laughs> I thought you were just going to say Christopher Nolan's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I already was in when I saw the name Alexander Payne and Paul Giamatti. I was like, well, this is it. I'm, I'm just going to be over the moon for the holdovers. Uh, a sight unseen. But there's always that chance. And so I entered the movie theater with just a little bit of trepidation. And boy, I should not have. For me, this is an instant classic, an instant Christmas classic, honestly, if you want to talk about that. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's not saccharine in the way that the the content that is dumped every December on, on Netflix and the Hallmark Channel and all this. Uh, before before I just really get into all the gushing, um, Mike, what did you think of the holdovers? And there's only one right answer. It's a little saccharine sweet. It, it is uh, <laughs> in a... Well, okay, maybe... Let me take that back. Maybe it's just earnest. It's both cynical and earnest, which is an odd combination uh, a little bit of the uh, the sweet and sour uh, to to go with uh, Jason Lee's uh, Vanilla Sky rants. Um, I think it's interesting you're saying it's an instant Christmas classic because I think those are I, I don't those are I, I don't even know if you can gauge it that way because is this going to be playing on ABC every year for the next twenty years? <laughs> like the repetitive nature of uh, Christmas airing seems to dictate Christmas classics. Uh, this one uh, undoubtedly had the reviews to back it up. Uh, there's instant praise. N unfortunately, not the box office success that I would like to have seen because 
while this is, I mean, it's a focus features release. So, I mean, you know, you can get in the weeds on, is it indie cinema? Is it not? I think, I think it was acquired for like $30 million. So this is not someone maxing out credit cards. You have, you know, uh, Academy Award nominated actor, right? Paul Giamatti for Cinderella Man, not for Sideways, oddly (laughs) enough. Not even nominated for Sideways. That's horrible. Uh, Alexander Payne. So you have uh, known elements here, and as you mentioned, sideways that combination again. You know, here here it is. Here's our modern Scorsese De Niro, which is Payne Giamatti. <laughs> <laughs> but I would be hard pressed to, I guess, believe anyone that's just like oh, I didn't like this. Yeah, I I could see you know it, it not it, it's not edgy. It, this is not hip. It's very like throwback. Uh, so I think if even if you go back to like the nineties, this might not even be like an Oscar bait movie. This would just have been like a normalish adult dramedy. But now there's those are so rare. We're like, well, I, I guess this has to be for awards because why else would they make it? <laughs> but it's a very entertaining movie. It's yeah. like to me. You're saying classic, you know, Christmas movie, which it very well could end up being for a lot of people. Uh, I-, I could see this just being a classic comedy down the road that people revisit, you know, 20 years from now. Like I said, that's hard to gauge, but uh, something that is um, instantly likable. The only uh, demerit I think cinephiles would hold against it is that it's almost too likable that they don't have to feel like they need to pick it up. And like express it to people like you wouldn't understand this, but I get it because I feel like this is something that's so universal that everyone could watch this and enjoy this, which may not be uh, what the letter letterbox crowd wants to hear. No, and I think the quote that comes to mind is Neil Druckmann, the guy who wrote the video games, The Last of Us, and also uh, I think a couple of the episodes on the TV show. The way that he approaches writing is like simple story, but complex characters. Mm, that's good. Yeah, that's that's how the holdovers is. It is a very simple story. I mean, you know what? I'll go ahead and say it's a predictable story. It very much is. You've got uh, the curmudgeon old guy. The uh, for the you know for the most part a blank slate you know younger individual. You've got a couple different kinds of relationships happening and they are going to go through an experience that's going to change them. And maybe they're going to become friends by the end of it. Who knows? Uh, That's kind of, the setup is very simple, very easy to uh, understand. It's predictable in that it's, it's human. Yeah. And that humans want to connect with one another. (laughs) Yeah. Not, not everyone wants to, to be Michael Fassbender and the killer. Everyone (laughs) wants to be so removed from society. So yeah, I mean, I don't want to make this movie sound, you know, mawkish or dorky, but I look at these people and like, yes, you can say, okay, there's a clear three-act structure, but I also feel like humans try to work three-act structures into their lives at different junctures as far as having that arc, forming those interpersonal relationships. Um, I I don't think it's easy, but the the setup, which is what our trilogy is for this month uh forces it, it expedites those relationships forming because they are literally stuck together in at at this school over the holidays so 
Um, maybe it wouldn't have happened other under other circumstances, but in these particular circumstances and going back to the Christmas element, you know, emotions are heightened during the holidays anyway. So you have these two loners, uh, who dislike each other and thank God we have, uh, an intermediary <laughs> in this woman that has to listen to the bullshit of these two men at different points in their lives. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I don't want to sound uh, defensive about this movie because I don't think you necessarily have to be, but I don't mind necessarily the, I guess, uh, predictable nature of it in, in that regard. Yeah, and let's not sell the Mary characters short because I think she is very integral and not I, – I think she's more than a mediary. Uh, one of the – let me be clear. I don't think she really wants to be. She's <laughs> put upon. She finds herself in that predicament. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, loneliness is something that is uh, addressed. I think for all three of the characters, she is lonely because you know, husband died prior to the birth of uh, her, her child, uh, Curtis, and and then Curtis said, neither you know the the really tragic line neither of them saw the age of 25 something along those lines uh, a really really heartbreaking and so she is lonely you've got obviously uh, our lead Paul who uh, he says says that he ran away from home uh, you know he lives in isolation uh, on purpose and, and understands that he is completely disliked if not hated by much of everyone around him and then you've got angus who is also isolated uh, not necessarily by choice because i think he still has a rapport with some of the students though it's not touched upon that much and clearly he i mean with the ladies very easy very easy for him uh in my opinion every every moment in the movie where he has an opportunity it seems like uh, he knows what he's doing but he's also lonely he's stuck here uh he is constantly uh, looks like moving from school to school right he's, he's kind of checking them off and and, and eventual i'm just chuckling because i think i couldn't tell if you were overstating or maybe underselling his ability with the ladies because <laughs> if you have paul giamatti as your wingman <laughs> I have to feel like you have some natural affinity when, when he's leering over your shoulder. Certainly. And, you know, all three of these main characters, they, they're they emotionally isolated, and then they end up being physically isolated kind of together. Uh, it's very charming to see them finding strength within each other and kind of evolving through their interactions. It's as simple as Mary being like, you can't tell him to you know you can't yell at him about having a good time uh when he's completely alone here without his parents without his friends he's yelling at uh paul right and so something as simple as that you wouldn't have gotten through to this curmudgeon professor but because she's having this interaction with him and and who knows they clearly have a little bit of a rapport uh from previous uh interactions i think but this is the most meaningful one. And so I love seeing that throughout the film, them just having these interactions and approaching the uh, the end of their relationships, um, th that, uh, seeing that evolution. Did you get a sense of, speaking of the, the isolating uh, you know nature of these, these characters, where they find themselves at their respective points in their lives, uh, Paul Giamatti's uh, teacher is... I think for the majority of the runtime is positioned as uh, seemingly deeply satisfied 
with what he does for a living, uh, passionate about it. He's not necessarily passionate about uh, developing friendships with these students, but it's definitely the sort of like tough love. Uh, this is going to be better for you. Like I have high expectations for you at this point in your lives. Even if your parents don't really, even if the other people in the administration don't, uh, I'm not rubber stamping like you to this uh, sort of Ivy League uh, existence that seems to be the path that's laid out before them. Well, hang on a second. Do you think he's satisfied because he truly is content with his life or because of the kind of left turn his life took at Harvard? I was about to posit to you, is there a case of arrested development with him? Not that he's immature. He's obviously, you know, he's he's very educated and he believes deeply in education. That So much so that it seems like an affront to him when people do not take schooling seriously, including his, his peers, not just the, the students. But given what happened to him in his life, where it's revealed later on that this is somewhat his only option. That he has to feel grateful for this. You know, you don't want to call it a prison because it seems like he's passionate about his work. He's not just going through the motions. No. But that that colors the character in a completely different way where it's revealed to the student that he the choices for him were removed. And so then, yeah, then I'm, I'm like probably the young man where I'm like, was well, is this like truly like if he could have chosen where he'd want to be is this what he would be doing with his life i think that's interesting because i don't think at the beginning of the film that you would gather that this guy you know especially in well unfortunately in real life but in filmed entertainment as well when you see a teacher who's sort of just sort of given up on it uh you damn well know that they're just <laughs> letting people slide by but that's not <laughs> the case with him here so if he feels that way, he's not showing it to the students. But yeah, that bit of information does bring some doubt there and perhaps makes the ending, uh, I don't know, less, I guess, less sad as possibly an opportunity. I don't know. Alexander Payne does not guide you one way or the other as far as like, hey, is his life going to turn out better after this? I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, I know you love Paul Giamatti and you see him as the embodiment of you on screen, which I think is unfair to you, <laughs> your social <laughs> skills. But it's like, it's probably for the best that Payne, we don't get an, an epilogue where it's like, I don't know, he ends up working at a cemetery as a groundskeeper or something. <laughs> no, I, I don't think we need an epilogue, Mike. I'm actually very reminded of the ending for sideways it's not about whether virginia madsen will open the door right it's about him driving there and knocking on the door that's the journey the the story is complete the arc is complete i think for him i like the idea that he's only content because he <laughs> hit somebody <laughs> with a car in Harvard and because of the political ramifications of that was kicked out and this is given to him. I think he's found contentment with his situation, but he chooses to protect this kid who he feels like has a lot of potential and sees a lot of himself in this child, you know, and so he makes that choice to because he knows he's going to get fired. Once he decides to protect him. And so he makes that choice and allows himself to have the playing field, the, the level playing field, the, the, the choice. Whatever he wants to do, he can do now, you know. Uh, 
and he gives himself that opportunity instead of being content with, as you said, a little bit of a prison. He This is the bubble because he's comfortable in it. He's in his comfortable fish smelly bubble. He is comfortable. And so now he's finally out in the world. He's going to let other people <laughs> into that smell. And I think that's important. That's the arc. You know, Payne, I didn't think I was going to bring this up, but he did miss an opportunity to have another uh, shower sequence with uh, Mr. Giamatti because I'm thinking back to Sideways <laughs> where he wakes up from a yet another boozy nap and is like smelling himself and like really scrubbing down like alright if I'm going to go talk to Virginia Madsen <laughs> I gotta smell my best uh, I also will only slightly disagree with you not on the holdovers which is what we're talking about but Sideways um, it does work beautifully for the film but I tell you what, if I'm Paul Giamatti's character, I care very much if she answers that door. Like, <laughs> it's not enough for me just to make the trip. <laughs> that's fair. That Yes, that's fair. From, from an analytical and a literary aspect, I'm content. But yes, you're right. That's a long way to go for, for uh, someone to... Well, it's Virginia Madsen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Screw the distance. It's just... <laughs> Um, oh, 100%. Yeah. So, what do you what do you think of this one, you know, not um having like a a long or sort of runaway uh theatrical success? Um because when you mention, you know, part of our our you know, this is our Christmas Day release, um Christmas movies uh don't have a history necessarily of being breakout hits uh initially. Uh you have something like I most famously is a wonderful life. Um, not seen as a success and thanks to broadcast television uh, becomes um, a classic that's always been there for most generations. Like, what do you mean? Like we've always had, it's a wonderful life and people have always loved it. I, I will go to my childhood and I don't remember the nightmare before Christmas. Uh, it was not the lion King when it released. And yet that is like, even today, like a, a coworker, uh, you know, people were wearing like Christmas stuff. Nightmare Before Christmas t-shirt on. And I'm I'm now old enough to know, like, you know, people didn't really dig that movie <laughs> when I was a kid. I didn't really dig that movie when I was a kid, and I still don't like it, which I think you have a more recent experience with that. And um, Christmas movies, in that regard, do you think um, they are personal in that nature, that people need to find them, that you can't market a holiday movie that people need to sort of embrace it themselves on their own time during, you know, whatever holiday season they discover it, and then they sort of bring it in to their, their sort of annual tradition. I hate to say it, but I think the only way this film is going to approach, you know, uh, it's never going to touch elf status, right? No, <laughs> yeah. So it's not going to be that level of a classic. But if it's going to have a shot, it's up to whatever algorithm the the people at uh, HBO or Paramount or wherever this ends up Netflix whenever uh, December rolls around I think it's going to be Peacock actually oh I'm no Peacock <laughs> <laughs> well then it's doomed no it's it, it's up to whoever writes that algorithm uh, to kind of promote it at that time here's the holiday collection right that's what you kind of and even God slap that ninety whatever percent Rotten Tomatoes sticker on it, pay that extra little money so that you can say, hey, this was critically approved. And, and audience, I'm sure its audience score is quite high as well. So 
it's kind of up to them. And we don't live in a time when we can just sit around uh, the fire and turn on the TV and watch whatever Christmas classic uh, that is deemed a Christmas classic or (laughs) whatever the uh, channel could afford at the time. It's now like, hey, let's open up whatever streaming service we are subscribed to and watch what's on there. Unfortunately, and it's it's up to you and on whatever you're being recommended rather than this is what's on TV. This is what you're going to watch. I'm not saying this would have helped, but as a uh, clearly uh, one of the world's biggest Wonder Boys fans, I would have loved the troll job of doing an exact replica, except with Paul Giamatti, the poster of his <laughs> Dietrich character. <laughs> you know what's funny is that the marketing for the holdovers, the the shocked face is very much very prominent. That's on the soundtrack that I'm listening to on Apple Music. It's it's on you know the if you get the vinyl, it's really really large. It's on the poster. Uh, it, it, <laughs> I bet Michael Douglas is like, why do they get to get away with it? <laughs> oh, when uh, Giamatti does it, it's cute, it's funny, and when I do it, it's unseemly. Yeah, that's. <laughs> Them's the breaks, Douglas. And that's the thing. The movie was actually kind of doing decent business, and then all of a sudden, uh, uh, over to streaming. And it's coming out on Blu-ray, I think, uh, in uh, in a couple of weeks. I think, yeah, it's the uh, the first of uh, first Tuesday in January, I believe. And I, I didn't see a commentary track, so I, I thought... Neither did know, I. And Webb Web, we would be really excited by that, but uh, unfortunately not. Um Speaking of Wonder Boys, let's let's do a little bit of our our trilogy uh, wrap up. I think it's stupid of me to even bother asking, you know, which of these films do you think did the best job of the theme? Because I think you're you're just gonna rubber stamp, you know, Payne and Giamatti to to victory. Uh, but our theme was, you know, not this is our only holiday entry, but uh, stuck uh, at school, and we have uh, three different characters in. Well, with Happy Death Day, very different situations on how they are stuck <laughs> because there is no slasher element to the holdovers or Wonder Boys. No, and and the thing with I hate to say it, but a Happy Death Day is really the odd man out here because at least in Wonder Boys and holdovers, you have a little bit of a father son relationship going. You have Grady and and James in Wonder Boys, and they kind of grow together as the movie progresses. Uh, Paul and Angus in the holdovers. As we stated, their evolution, uh, their relationship also evolves as the movie progresses. Tree in, in Happy Death Day, she has Carter, her love interest, and the constant interaction with him and seeing him react to her, uh, I mean, you know, over and over and over, I assume more times than what we see uh, on screen, uh, gets her uh, to uh, have the epiphany of the kind of person she is and who she ultimately wants to be so all of our characters the main characters here are stuck not only at school but they're also stuck emotionally and tree unfortunately is kind of stuck metaphysically as well (laughs) so it it, she yeah that one is kind of the odd man out obviously because it's also a genre film where the other two are more standard dramedies Uh, but uh yeah it's it's i think the weaker of the three Obviously, obviously, the holdovers is uh, ahead of the pack, but but Wonder Boys is not that far behind in terms of uh, how it fits into uh, this theme uh, this month. So, no, I, I'll give you props as to they're much. They're the two movies are very similar, uh, much more similar than I ever gave it credit for. 
Yeah, and I mean, as we touched upon in the Wonder Boys episode that released in February was not it initially wasn't even considered for an awards race because that would have been for the following year. And then they tried to like, Oh shit, we should have released this in the fall. Let's just do it all over again. Uh, did not work. Um, so yeah, I think if the holdovers had released in 2000, it would have been maybe a February or March release or, you know, removing the Christmas element, obviously, which sometimes doesn't matter. I mean, Batman returns released in the middle in June. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Die hard as well. Um, I I was looking at it from the the main character's uh perspective and that from I actually thought Wonder Boys was if you look at it just from our leads uh was sort of the outlier because uh as we talked about in that episode Michael Douglas is perceived as you know this great author cuz he has, he's had one great work and everybody's just waiting with anticipation like what's he cooking up for the next one but because it's told from his perspective and through a lot of his voiceover, we know he doesn't have the goods. And so there's a lot of doubt. Uh, there's a lot of self-loathing. I don't think that we see that really at all in Happy Death Day. Um, irritation <laughs> at oh, yeah. a particular plight. Uh, maybe possibly with our main character, Tree, uh, as you said, a reassessment of... I, I guess if you get to live, I mean, I don't think anyone has done the Groundhog Day uh, equation for it. It's, you know, they have they've, people on the internet are like, oh, this is how many years he actually spent in exile. I don't know if they've done that with Happy Death Day or if there's enough evidence, you know, with the montages uh, as far as how many trips around for her. Well, she's also suffering not only emotionally, but physically. There's yeah. a ticking clock Hated that for her. part. Don't 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 do that to beautiful blondes on screen. That's un, that's totally unnecessary. But I I looked at her and at least uh, Paul Hunnam and uh, the holdovers as closer. This will be the only time I will say Jessica Roth and Paul Giamatti same same in that <laughs> <laughs> you know for most of the film uh, projecting confidence. Like why am I have to why am I having to deal with this bullshit? Everyone gets on my nerves. Like I have to do this myself. And Douglas was actually the outlier where he's like, I don't think I can. I, everyone respects me, but I think I actually suck. So that's <laughs> what I looked at. Webb was that actually, and I'm going to side with you again. Paul Giamatti and Jessica Roth have vanquished sex heartthrob Michael Douglas, and they are the true alphas in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh man uh yeah it's so funny I, I you are clearly like and i will you know have, have, we've been doing this for for two years uh this is the 150th episode i meant or no happy death day was 150th but this oh, trilogy we passed okay. that marker so wow uh yeah and, and i will fully admit that you are much better on purpose or by accident, either way, like you are much better at putting together trilogies that have a much deeper meaning. I think I'm very superficial when it comes to trying. I think about a movie that I like. I'm like, what's what's similar? In it? But you get it into the heart of these in films. In fairness to you, behind the scenes, it's not like when we're doing uh, Batman, you're like, we're going to do a Batman trilogy. So I've picked three Batman movies. You're not that. <laughs> <laughs> on the nose with it <laughs> fair but uh i will i fully concede to your, uh, your you know you are much superior when it comes to that i i absolutely uh love the holdovers obviously i 
am growing more fond of the Wonder Boys, even since a short time since we last recorded. And, oh, that's and interesting. About it. Yeah, because yeah. I felt like when we hit record or started the Zoom call, uh, it was like, eh, I guess. But that that is the but you know that somewhat mirrors. I told you I watched it theatrically, and I was like, eh, movie for old people. And yet I kept coming back to it for, yeah. for some reason. I will uh, concede to you that you're correct. Toby never gets better. Um, as we all as we all know, that will never improve. Uh, and unfortunately for Happy Death Day, I was just speaking to a, a buddy of mine. We we had just watched the Iron Claw, and I think we both kind of came to the same conclusion, where it was like, uh, boy, we we kind of wanted it to be better. Uh, we're both wrestling fans, so we already had a biased uh, interest going in. But it was that same journey of like, uh, eh, let's see. And then, oh, wait, I, we're invested. Oh, it, it should have been better. And it's a weird journey to have. Uh, but despite that, I, I'm pretty certain I will revisit Happy Death Day um, every now and then. If nothing else, to see the limited Jessica Roth content. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, <laughs> we almost got out of this episode without, you know, lamenting her career choices or what's been presented for her. We say that with love and that she's so good yes. uh, in, in that movie. Um, but yes, I, I will say that uh, I, I do revisit Happy Death Day as just a, a fun uh, movie. Uh, in that regard, I will also concede to you that Wonder Boys is perhaps the least fun of these. I, I think that going forward, I will watch The Holdovers and Happy Death Day more than than Wonder Boys. But um, I don't think that's a hot take. It would be if, if I went the other way, people would be like, "Okay, that's on brand. He's he's defending Wonder <laughs> Boys to his death." Um, I really enjoyed uh, this this trilogy. I enjoyed seeing. I mean, uh, thank you for the compliment, but I you know. Characters being stuck was a problem is not a highly specific theme, but I felt like these films uh, approached it, whether it's through the, as you said, the metaphysical or just using the boundaries of uh, school or this great novel someone's trying to, to write. Um, I thought they used it uh, all in an interesting way to just see characters get over the hump because every every movie for the most part is about what problem our lead character will resolve to, to move forward. Um but yeah, I, I was very enthusiastic about this, and the best thing I can say about the holdovers is high expectations and did not disappoint. Which is honestly quite a feat in in today's um, rocky. You know, uh, it, it's a it's an uphill battle for every film that comes out in the theaters to kind of capture its audience, especially if there's not an established uh, intellectual property. You know, it's it's a climb, and uh, hopefully, uh, this film continues to find that audience, even if it's as simple as a "Hey, this is a feel-good crowd pleaser with uh, uh, fun things." Like, uh, hopefully, somebody calls somebody else penis cancer in real life, and it it catches. Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>